You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. When I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've been watching a strange amount of silent Olympic footage this week. They're a part of the Criterion Collection, which I'm trying to uh, make my way through. But I find them like weirdly relaxing to watch while I answer emails at work. I don't know what stage of being an adult that is, but I- I've hit it. <laughs> Otherwise, I went to a rum festival and drank too much rum last night. So I'm starting recording on this bad boy way later in the day than normal because I had to recover a bit. I'm not hungover in the traditional sense, but my body did um, reject the amount of fun that I had. And I got a valuable lesson in why you should eat before you go to... A rum festival or just a evening of drinking in general. I had like some chicken. I had I like girl dinnered all day. And uh that was not the not the not the move. Anyway, this week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got It Lives Inside. I went into this movie having seen the trailer a few times, but that was it. I didn't know much about it. It's basically the premise is it's about two teenage girls, one of whom is carrying around a creepy ass mason jar with a sinister entity trapped inside. What Follows is a film about relationships, culture, and it's filled with horror cliches, but it was watchable, which is more than I can say for the majority of PG-13 horror films. It was also uh, the director's first film, and it did have first film problems, but, you know, you got to start somewhere. So there's that. It's not bad. It's not anything I would go actively seeking out again. But if I like saw it on streaming and I just needed something in the background, that's kind of what I think this would end up being for me down the line. Strike updates. (laughs) Yeah, not much change there. Warner is reporting a $300 to $500 million loss this year as a result of the strike. They also paused all of the producer deals on Friday, meaning none of the producers are going to get paid until the strikes are over. But yeah, strike very much on. They haven't. The AMPTP hasn't brought forth another deal. It's it's a thing. It's. Another, probably another week of holding patterns. Maybe something will happen this week, but I say that every week. Anyway, and now on to this week's topic. So last week I did an oopsie and discovered that I get Jane Russell and Jane Mansfield's names mixed up for obvious reasons. Last week I said we're doing Jane Russell this week, but as you can see from the episode title, we're not. We're doing Jane Mansfield. We'll do Jane Russell someday. Just not today. I hope no one's terribly disappointed. I don't know. That was, again, that was the thing I learned. I, I know, like, I don't get their careers mixed up, but I get their names mixed up, if that makes sense. So, Yeah. This week, the life, career, and tragic death of one of Hollywood's favorite dumb blondes, who in reality was anything but Jane Mansfield. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. When do we leave? 
Leave and walk out on all this publicity? Ooh. Publicity? You can get all of that you want in Hollywood. Oh, hold the phone. This is Vi you're talking to. Don't tell me you've gone and flipped for rock. Oh, I'll be a writer's subplot you have. Vi, I know it all started out to be a stunt to burn Bobo, but Rocky kissed me and then, oh, something happened. Honest, it was just like electricity. Mm, I know, that wonderful ACDC feeling, but that is not love. Oh, it's close enough. Born Vera Jane Palmer on April 19, 1933, in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. The actress, who would soon be known the world over as Jane Mansfield, was the only child of Herbert, an attorney, and Vera. Herbert would die when Jane was just three years old of a heart attack coming home from a doctor's appointment. In 1939, Vera remarried and the family relocated to Dallas. There, Jane became a very talented violinist. Violinist? Violinist? At age 12, she began taking ballroom dancing classes. She was also an above-average student and had quite the aptitude for language. In all, it's estimated that Jane spoke upwards of five languages. And at least three of them, including English, she was fluent in. As a young girl, Jane wanted to be just like Shirley Temple. Her bedroom walls were plastered with images of movie stars, and she loved to dress up in her mother's clothes and jewelry, practicing the movements she'd seen up on the silver screen. But while she had this borderline genius IQ, some estimate around 160-163, Jane would be better known for her physical appearance throughout her life, namely her 40-inch bosom, which began developing when she was quite young. This obviously got her attention from the opposite sex, because that's generally how these things work, and Jane was regularly dating by the time she was 13. Jane got pregnant at 16. One source I came across said 15, but they clearly couldn't math, so it was, it was 15. Or 16, she was 16. Soon after, Jane married Paul Mansfield on May 6, 1950, who may or may not have been the baby's biological father, depending on the source. Their daughter, Jane Marie Mansfield, was born six months later. Paul thought that having a baby would end in Jane's head any notions of becoming an actress. He was sorely mistaken. Jane began entering and ultimately winning an obscene amount of beauty contests. Some of her titles included Miss Photo Flash, Miss Magnesium Lamp, Princess of the Freeways, and Miss Fire Prevention Week. The only title she ever refused was Miss Roquefort Cheese because she thought it, quote, didn't sound right. In 1953, she moved back to Dallas after a brief time studying elsewhere to start studying acting under Baruch Lumet. Lumet gave Jane private lessons and also referred to her as one of his quote unquote kids. In 1954, Jane convinced the family to pick up and move to Los Angeles so that Jane might make a full run at this whole Hollywood thing she'd been dreaming of since she was a kid. The timing couldn't have been better for her, it would turn out, as one of the archetypes Hollywood was starting to play up was that of the dumb blonde bombshell of which Jane physically hit the mark when she dyed her dark hair platinum blonde. She'd been studying the movie Star Magazines for years and knew exactly what was needed of her to fit the part. While trying to break in, Jane worked at a variety of odd jobs, including selling popcorn and candy, teaching dance, modeling, and photographing people at a restaurant. 
As soon as she got to Hollywood, Jane had found the phone number for Paramount and just called them because you could kind of do that back then. Lume, her former acting teacher, ensured that she was seen by Milton Lewis, the casting agent for that studio. Jane performed a soliloquy she had worked on with Lume from Joan of Arc, but Lewis informed her that she was wasting her quote-unquote obvious talents and had her come back a week later to perform the piano scene from The Seven-Year Itch, which was comedic in tone. She later performed the piano scene for Warner Brothers, but was also not taken aboard. Both of the studios turned her down. Undeterred, Jane did get hired to be a part of a press tour for the Jane Russell film Underwater, which released in 1955. On the tour, which back then included like little shows and publicity moments so the public could kind of like see the movie stars and they do little like stunts and be like, come see the movie. It was basically a precursor to like a press junket. Jane Mansfield was reported to have upstaged Jane Russell on multiple stops on the tour, mainly because of her willingness to be on camera and to perform for the photographers. Soon, she was slapped on the cover of newspapers all over the country. For the rest of her life, Jane would be a tabloid staple. In February 1955, Mansfield was the Playboy of the Month and appeared in the magazine several times. Her February appearance increased the magazine's circulation and helped boost Jane's career. Shortly afterward, she posed for the Playboy calendar, covering her breasts with her hands. Playboy would feature Jane each February from 1955 to 1958 and once more in 1960. Also in 1955 came Jane's first film part, which was a supporting role in Female Jungle, which was a low-budget drama. In February 1955, James Byron, her manager and publicist, secured Jane a contract with Warner Brothers, who, like several of the studios after the underwater tour, were now intrigued by her because of her antics and the way the public had reacted to her. The contract paid her $250 a week, which is about... $3,000, $3,500 in today money, and Jane was soon given small parts in Pete Kelly's Blues from 1955 and Hell on Frisco Bay, also 1955. At this time in the U.S., people, men, side, side, quick side note, the amount of documentaries I had to sit through for this week and listen to creepy old men talk about this woman's breasts to no end was incredibly icky. And they're like smiling about it because they think it's goofy. It's like, stop talking about this dead woman's boobs. Weird. Anyway, people in the U.S., mainly, mainly men, were into a larger chested woman. But of course, Americans have historically always been uncomfortable acknowledging sexual things openly by and large. So in order for Jane to have her chest on full display meant that they needed to be acknowledged. And the only way to do that was through comedy. You couldn't like seriously point at her chest and be like, hey, look at those. And no, they never thought that they couldn't not mention the boobs. The boobs had to be mentioned. And yes, they are like their boobs. I I mean, as a straight woman, I don't get it, but I it's it's just boobs. I just so ridiculous. Early examples of this include The Girl Can't Help It from 1956, in which Jane is treated like a Monroe lookalike prop, essentially. The running joke throughout all of these films was that her boobs could pop out at any time, and that tantalized audiences. Oh, most audiences, because you know who didn't like that? Paul Mansfield. 
Paul had been supportive in the early days, likely because he didn't think his wife was actually going to take off in the way that she did. It soon became abundantly clear that the two of them had complete opposite views as to what they wanted their lives to be. Also, lots of infidelity happening, and Paul returned to Dallas in the spring of 1955. In August 1956, Paul tried to get full custody of their daughter, who they'd actually initially left with Jane's parents when they'd first moved to California. Paul claimed that Jane was an unfit mother because she had appeared nude in Playboy. Jane filed for divorce in California in 1956, and Paul filed suit in 1957 in Texas, citing mental cruelty, and the divorce was not finalized until January of 1958. Paul would try and fail to win custody suits over Jane Marie while also trying to prevent her from traveling abroad with her mother. After the divorce, Jane decided to keep Mansfield as her professional name, despite, you know, all of Paul's tomfoolery. And after that, Jane Marie didn't have much of a relationship with her father. Free from her first marriage, Jane's career failed to really take off, and her Warner contract did not get renewed. It briefly looked like Jane's career might be done for after only two years in Hollywood. But luckily for Jane, she had a good agent, and that agent tried to get her to do something a little different. He got her a contract to play fictional film star Rita Marlowe in the Broadway play Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. Over in New York, she continued the litany of press she'd been doing for movies, but this time she was doing it for the play. This hard work paid off, and Jane received rave reviews for her performance. Jane had also accepted this part while working on 1957's The Burglar, which was a film noir based on a novel of the same name. She's actually very good in this very straight dramatic role. It's not like a dark comedy. It's just a straight drama. But despite that, most of her film roles after this were comedic or emphasized her sex appeal. The director of the project, Louis Kelman, would take the credit for quote unquote discovering Jane, even though he was hardly the first person to notice her. 20th Century Fox signed Jane Next to a six-year contract on May 3rd, 1956. They were hoping she would become their resident blonde bombshell, having just gotten rid of Marilyn Monroe, for they fired her for being difficult. Ten days later, she met the man that would become her second husband, Mickey Hargitay, at a nightclub in New York City where he was performing as a member of the chorus line in Mae West's show. Hargate was an actor and bodybuilder who had won the Mr. Universe competition in 1955. Jane fell head over heels in love with him at pretty much first sight, which resulted in a squabble with West. During the fight, Mr. California actually beat up Mickey Hargate and was arrested. Jane's Broadway stint went until September 15, 1956. After that, she and Hargate uprooted their lives on the West Coast, and Jane returned to Hollywood. Her first starring role for Fox was The Girl Can't Help It, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. Released in December, the film became one of the year's biggest successes, both critically and financially, outperforming Marilyn Monroe's biggest hit ever for that studio. So to Fox, at this point, it looked like their investment had paid off pretty quickly. Soon after, Fox started promoting Jane as, quote, Marilyn Monroe king-sized, which was an effort they were making to try and coerce Monroe to return to the studio and complete her contract, because jealousy typically is a strong motivator. 
Meanwhile, Jane next had a dramatic role in the Wayward Bus from 1957, which was a brief attempt to move her away from the quote-unquote bombshell image and establish her as a serious actress. The film only saw moderate box office success, and Jane won a Golden Globe in 1957 for the role for Star of the Year. Jane next appeared in the film version of the Broadway show, Will Success, Spoil Rock Hunter, which her second husband would take credit for pitching to the studio, but I'm not, I couldn't find any reputable source that that was the case. Released in 1957, Jane reprised her role from the Broadway show, and the film is by and large considered to be Jane's best. Fox sent their blonde bombshell on a North American tour and a 40-day 16-country tour of Europe. On this tour, she even met Queen Elizabeth II. After returning home from the tour, Mickey Hargitay proposed. On June 13, 1958, just days after her divorce from Paul was finalized, Jane married Hargitay. The glass chapel they chose made public and press viewing for the wedding ideal. The two then toasted with pink champagne at their reception. Jane's fourth starring role was in Kiss Them For Me, which was also 1957. Despite top billing, however, Jane is little more than comic relief in this movie. Upon its release, the film was described as vapid, amongst other things, and was a critical and box office flop. It marked one of the last attempts by 20th Century Fox to hype up Jane. The continuing publicity surrounding her physical appearance, it seemed, was not enough to sustain her career. Despite this, Fox gave her a leading role in The Sheriff of Fractured Jaw from 1958, which was a Western comedy. Fox released the film in the United States in 1959, and it was Jane's last mainstream film success. After that, Columbia offered her a part in a romantic comedy, but she turned it down as she had become pregnant. After Hargitay made his film debut, he and Jane became a performing team during Jane's public appearances. And in 1959, her and Mickey even set up a cabaret act in Vegas for a week where Jane could be seen wearing a leopard bikini, which became a major topic of discussion and a major source of newspaper coverage. In the show, Hargitay tossed her around and spun her in acrobatic circles. The money from that engagement allowed them to buy a house on Sunset Boulevard that would famously become known as the Pink Palace, which, other than being incredibly pink, had a heart-shaped pool. In 1959, Fox cast her in two independent gangster films shot in the United Kingdom. Both films were low budget and their American releases were delayed. Too Hot to Handle was not released in the U.S. until 1961 and was renamed Playgirl After Dark. In it, there was an attempt to once again have Jane be serious, but it, again, didn't really land. The second film, The Challenge, was released in 1963 as It Takes a Thief. Jane had no major starring roles in Hollywood after 1959. She was unable to fulfill a third of her contract with Fox due to her reported, quote-unquote, repeated pregnancies. For the record, it was two and they were not consecutive because their children were born in 1958 and 1960. So there was at least a chunk of time there where she was not pregnant. As a result of all of this, Fox stopped viewing her as one of their major stars and just started loaning her out to foreign productions in England and Italy until the end of her contract in 1962. Unfortunately, many of the films that Jane did over there are lost due to their poor film storage and not upkeep, but like, what's the word? Like archival. They, they've got bad archival stuff over there back then. 
Hargate would play her love interest in these films more often than not, so it was very much a two-for-one deal for these studios. When Jane returned to Hollywood in mid-1960, 20th Century Fox did cast her in one final project. It happened in Athens, which came out in 1962. She received first billing above the title, but appeared in only a supporting role. Fox was attempting to use her name and likeness in the hope of getting attention for a star they were trying to mold into a heartthrob. I've never heard of the guy, so I'm guessing it didn't work out. It was a box office failure, and 20th Century Fox dropped Mansfield's contract after that. After a brief stint in some Hollywood films, Jane returned to work on films in Europe. There, she was convinced to become the first mainstream American actress to appear nude in a starring role in the film Promises, Promises from 1963. Playboy published nude photographs of Jane on the set in its June 1963 issue, resulting in obscenity charges against Hugh Hefner in a Chicago court. Promises, Promises was banned in the city of Cleveland, Ohio, but other than that, enjoyed box office success elsewhere because, well, people wanted to see the boobs. Let's be honest. As a result of the film's success, Jane landed on the top 10 list of box office attractions for that year. Soon after, Jane was offered to replace a recently deceased Marilyn Monroe as a result of the success of the film, but once again, she had to turn it down as she found herself with childs. And there were a couple of other issues. In 1962, Jane had a well-known affair with Enrico Bamba, the Italian producer of her film Panic Button. In 1963, she had another well-publicized affair with singer Nelson Sardelli, whom she had planned to marry reportedly when her divorce from Mickey Hargitay was finalized. Speaking of them, the couple divorced in Juarez, Mexico in May 1963. It was a little bit of a messy divorce, and during the proceedings, the actress even attempted to force a more favorable financial settlement by accusing Hargate of kidnapping one of her children. But when Jane discovered that she was pregnant after the divorce, and knowing that being an unwed mother would have endangered her career, she and Hargate agreed to announce that they were actually still married. Their daughter, Mariska, who you will likely know as Detective Benson on Law & Order SVU, was born in January 1964 after the actual divorce, but before California ruled it valid. So, hey, loophole. After that, the roles that Jane was offered started getting worse and worse. She had very little control over her career and there was nothing she could do about it. She tried every single avenue she possibly could. Eventually, she landed in Vegas, where she started once again doing variety shows that got more and more risque. In 1966, Jane appeared in Single Room Unfurnished, which was directed by her third husband, Matt Simber, a director that she hoped would increase her potential as a dramatic actress, despite him having no Hollywood career or connections to speak of. The film required Jane to portray three separate characters and was her first starring dramatic role in several years. It was released briefly in 1966, but did not enjoy a full release until 1968, and you'll see why in a minute. After Single Room Furnished wrapped, Jane was next cast in The Las Vegas Hillbillies from 1966, which was a low-budget comedy. Jane filmed her last role, a cameo in A Guide for the Married Man. The opening credits would list Jane as one of the film's technical advisors. The marriage to Simber ended in 1966 after less than two years of marriage, but not before she gave birth to her son Tony in 1965. 
The relationship was volatile and the divorce was nasty. By this point, Jane, frustrated and frankly probably more than a little exhausted, began abusing drugs and alcohol. Mickey Hargitay stepped in to help, as by this time they'd squashed their beasts with each other and became something like best friends. Those were his words. Jane began taking necessary jobs to pay the bills, which took her to places she didn't necessarily want to be. The press treated her like a no-talent sex object by this point and was quick to snap photos of her to prove this hypothesis. Pictures of Jane being drunk at Vegas nightclubs began making the rounds, and overall she started partying harder and harder and making arguably poorer and poorer life decisions. Around 1966-1967, Jane began relying more and more on her divorce attorney turned, I think, lover. It kind of, there's a lot of subtext that it, they might have been, at least very casually dating, Sam Brody. Brody had allegedly been cursed by Anton LaVey, who was the founder of the Church of Satan. Jane had actually even met LaVey, and LaVey had warned her to stay away from Brody. LaVey had claimed to have cursed him and told Jane that he had less than a year to live, so it'd be best if she just kept her distance. On June 28, 1967, Jane Mansfield was in Biloxi, Mississippi, for two shows at the Gus Stevens Supper Club as a part of a nightclub tour that Brody had booked for her to just basically suck the last drops out of Jane's career. That night, Jane, Brody, their driver, who was a 20-year-old named Ronnie Harrison, who had slept about three hours in the last two days, it would turn out, and her three children with Hargitay, left Biloxi after midnight in a 1966 Buick headed for New Orleans. Jane had shows there the next day, but she would never make it. Around 2.25 a.m. on June 29th, the Buick crashed at a high speed into the back of a tractor trailer that had slowed down for an approaching insecticide fogger truck, and the insecticide fog had made visibility quite poor. The car slid underneath the truck, which ripped the roof off of the car, and the three adults in the front seat died instantly. The children, who had been asleep in the back seat and therefore below where the back of the truck raised the car, survived with mostly minor injuries. Jane was just 34 years old, the same age her father was when he died. Urban legends stating that Jane was decapitated are likely untrue, although she did suffer grievous head trauma, which led to her death. This rumor had started with the release of the police photographs that show a mess of blonde hair tangled within the windshield. This was likely a wig, as the autopsy makes no mention of her head being damaged in that way. After Jane's death, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration recommended requiring a strong bar made out of steel tubing to be installed on all tractor trailers. In America, the underride guard, as it's called, is sometimes referred to as the Mansfield Bar. The death car was actually saved by a private collector in Florida, where it became a roadside attraction in the 1970s. Since 2019, the car is on display as part of the Dearly Departed Tours and Artifact Museum in Los Angeles. If you are in L.A. and curious, it's apparently, I've not gone, but I've heard of it, and it's apparently like a crazy museum. There's two very morbid museums in Hollywood, and this one, particular one, is across the street from the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. So apropos, I guess, in a, in a dark way. They're also the Death Museum, which has got messed up stuff and actually had a panic attack in there one time. Fun fact. But yeah, you can still go see the car 
which is which feels like I love morbid stuff of that one. That one feels a little skeezy to me. Like they died in the car. Jane's funeral took place on July 3rd in Penn, Argyle, Pennsylvania. Mickey Hargitay was the only of Jane's ex-husbands to be present at the funeral. She was interred in Fairview Cemetery beside her father, Herbert. Jane Mansfield's life and career was overall a tragically brief one for a multitude of reasons. Despite her obvious intelligence and know-how, she was seen as nothing more than a sex object by the studios and producers and directors and press at the time. Nothing more than a chance to make a quick buck. But Jane was a highly intelligent woman who, if she'd been given the chance, might have truly shined on the silver screen. Unfortunately, we'll never know. (laughs) I'm glad you like it, Mr. Miller. I like it, but I'm a little confused. Who isn't? You know, sometimes I think I'm mixed up. Well, no, I mean, for instance, if you like keeping house, why a maid? Mr. Murdoch doesn't want me to work. He says I have to be a career. Have to be? Most pretty girls want careers. Pretty. You should see me in the morning without makeup. I'll show you sometime. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. If you wouldn't mind listening on Spotify, they just made getting ambassador ads 10 times more difficult, and I need a little bit of a boost over there in order to keep qualifying for ads. So if you're partial, uh, take a pop over there. I'd appreciate that very much. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out anyway, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I had Taco Bell coffee this morning, which was which was very sweet, but I needed tacos to wipe out the rest of the rum. So you got to do what you got to do sometimes. I've also got merch. Check it out with the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the life and times of Grace Kelly. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.